In the 19th century, a group of archaeologists excavating the ruins of a building in Rome made a startling discovery. Carved into the wall of a room where slaves were kept, they discovered one of the earliest depictions of Jesus that we have. It is believed to date back to the second century. It is about 12 inches tall and 12 inches wide, and it is not flattering. The graffiti depicts a man with his hands stretched out as if in prayer, and next to him, looking down at him, is a man with the head of a donkey being crucified. Below the image, an inscription reads, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, or Alexamenos worships God. So one of the first depictions of Jesus that we have did not come from a pious artist painting prayerfully in a studio. It comes from one of Alexamenos' fellow slaves who found his Christian beliefs so idiotic that he carved a donkey-headed Christ into the wall where everyone could see it. That image lets us infer something about how Christians were viewed in second century Rome, not well. But when we jump right to what it tells us about ourselves, we miss something obvious and profound about the image itself and what it tells us about God. We take it for granted today that crosses are a symbol of Christianity. If you want to communicate that something is related to Jesus, you just put a cross on it. But Christians only adopted the cross as a symbol of their faith in the fourth century. At the time, Alexamenos' fellow slave drew this donkey-headed Christ in the second century, no Christian would have chosen a cross as a symbol of their beliefs. It was too soon. Crosses were still being used. They weren't the kind of abstract symbols they would later become. And yet, when this amateur artist wanted to depict the Christian God, he knew exactly what to draw. Not Jesus feeding the 5,000, or Jesus raising Lazarus, or Jesus teaching the Beatitudes. No, Jesus on a cross. Alexamenos' God was a crucified God. The depiction is not flattering, but he got it exactly right. So why does it matter that Jesus was crucified? We're so used to hearing this language that it's easy to breeze through it without really stopping to think about it. One of the absolutions we use frequently on Sundays begins with this sentence. In the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for us, and for his sake, God forgives us all of our sins. That seemingly benign sentence has at least three major questions loaded in it. What does it mean that Jesus was given to die? What does it mean that Jesus was given to die for us? And what does Jesus' death have to do with our sins? Those are big questions, and the answers to them are even bigger. And when the authors of the New Testament try to explain Jesus' death, they don't come up with one single answer for what it means. So this morning, I want to give you just one image, one perspective on what Jesus' death means and what it does. In today's first gospel reading, we heard the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And the crowd greets Jesus with palm branches and shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Except you may have noticed that's not what the crowd shouts at all in today's gospel reading. They shout, blessed is the king. Luke wants to make clear that what the crowd wants from Jesus isn't equal to the powers that be. Someone who can dislodge the ruling class and rule benevolently in their stead. Jesus has been peaceful thus far and just and merciful in his ministry, but now things are going to have to be different. 
Jesus is going to have to change. And yet, Jesus does not change. When Jesus has a chance to abandon his ministry before things go downhill, he doesn't take it. When Jesus has a chance to start a political revolution against Pilate, he doesn't take it. When Jesus has a chance to react violently to Herod's attacks, he doesn't take it. And then, of course, there's that striking moment we heard in today's second gospel reading. While Jesus is being crucified, he prays, Father, forgive them. Whenever Jesus is met with evil during his passion, he responds with love. He never changes. This is part of what the crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem misunderstands. Because that crowd, like us, is stuck in relationships and systems that change how we act and lead us to do things that don't reflect who we really are. When we do something that doesn't reflect our character, what's the thing we usually say? Somebody made me do it. Somebody made me feel this way. We don't feel totally free to be in the world because so much of our lives is just responding to the world that other people have made for us. We're caught up in cycles of violence. We have global conflicts that seem stuck in a constant cycle where somebody else started it and everyone claims to be acting in self-defense. Many people in abusive relationships are stuck in a cycle of tension, violence, and remorse that repeats over and over again. And those repeat over generations, too. Many of us know people who were abused as children and grew up to be abusers themselves. And we're caught up in exchanges. We treat other people better when they seem to have something to offer us. Or we feel beholden to other people because we feel like we owe them something. We act against our own character to satisfy other people. And those cycles and exchanges change us. So part of what the cross reveals to us is God's freedom. That God isn't subject to the same cycles of violence and exchanges of power that control our lives. God is going to keep on loving, forgiving, healing, reconciling, whether we want God to or not. No matter what we do, no matter how far to the edge we push God, outside the city, up on a cross, we discover that God acts the same. We can't change God's mind or get God to act in a way that doesn't reflect God's character. In other words, what the death of Jesus reveals is that his purpose, his mission, his love, his connection with the one he calls the Father cannot be extinguished. Even when presented with the very worst that we are capable of, even we have reached the very limits of what we can do. God is still God. So getting back to our original question, how does Jesus' death bring us back into relationship with God? Well, what God's freedom reveals to us is that this is a God who can be trusted. The fact that Jesus' life and his passion reflect the same commitment and values, even at the very extreme of human evil, means that Jesus' life and God's life have integrity. They hang together. They are what they say they are. They can be depended on. In other words, there's no God behind God with other opinions about us, or other inclinations toward us. What we encounter in Jesus' passion is the complete and total revelation of God's character. A God who doesn't just love when it's convenient, or forgive when it's easy, or seek reconciliation when it's comfortable. But a God who chooses to go on loving and forgiving and reconciling no matter what. 
This is a God you can trust. And yet we know how hard it is to trust. We trust that people have our best interests at heart, and later on we find out that we're just looking out for themselves. We trust that other people love us for who we are, and then we find out that they just love us for what we can do for them. We trust that people mean what they say, and then we find out later that they've been lying to us the whole time. And what's the word we use to describe those people? Two-faced. There was a part of them that we didn't see. There was this other aspect of them that was hidden, and now that it's been revealed to us, we know we shouldn't have trusted them, but it's too late. If only we'd known what they were like all along, we wouldn't have put our trust in them. In the death of Jesus, especially in his act of forgiving on the cross, we see that there is no other face. This is it. This is God. In the face of the crucified Jesus, we see nothing less than the likeness of the Trinity poured out into this one singular human life. This is who God is. This is what God does. God never turns away from us or shows us another face. This is a God you can trust. In his painting of Christ's entombment from 1554, the Italian painter Moretto de Brescia depicts Mary clutching the body of Jesus as he's laid in his tomb. Surrounded by rich colors and fabrics, Christ's face and skin are startlingly gray, devoid of any life. And on his tombstone is an inscription from Philippians 2, which we heard earlier this morning. He became obedient unto death. Obedience here not meaning that Jesus met some arbitrary set of standards, but that Jesus' life has perfectly revealed the heart of God's character and action and being. See, the face of the crucified Jesus tells you something. Perhaps that's why Alex Aminos' fellow slave was comfortable drawing a naked man being crucified, but chose not to depict Jesus' face. It's hard to look at the face of the crucified one, because the face makes a claim on us. The face tells us that there's no God behind this God. The face tells us that this is a God we can trust. The face tells us that no matter how far we push God away, Outside the city, up on a cross, God is still God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.